0: Folks, the holidays are just around the corner, and we here at Velo News have a great gift idea for that cyclist in your life. Again, you've heard me talk about Velo News Pass and Active Pass are two digital memberships going on with VeloNews.com, and right now this week we have a special deal going on. You can get Velo News Pass, which includes a print magazine subscription uh, as well as access to all of the cool content. On Bellonews.com and some other perks. Right now, $34.30 for 12 months. An active pass, which includes that good stuff, plus coaching advice, access to events, industry deals, a bunch of other cool stuff. Right now, $69.30 for the entire year. Uh, and that also gets you access to all the cool content. Going on on VelaNews.com right now, we have a great column this week by Jim Cotton explaining why Ian Stannard's win at Omloop Het Newsblad in 2015 was the greatest victory by Team Sky. I totally disagree with that take, but our good friend Jim lays out a fairly compelling case why uh, Ian Stannard going up against three quick steps and coming out uh, the winner was the biggest win ever. Anyway, for more information, go to VelaNews.com forward slash active pass. And uh, yeah, think about giving that cyclist in your life the gift of content for the holidays. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Uh, Velo News Podcast, Fred Dreyer coming to you on a cold and snowy Tuesday here in Colorado. Holy cow, this is the time of year in Colorado where they say if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes or travel five miles. I have no doubt that by the time you listen to this podcast, uh, birds will be chirping, the sun will be shining, and all the snow will be melted here in Colorado. At least that's what I'm hoping. Um, this is the Thanksgiving week edition of the news podcast. And so uh, we here at news are hoping that you are happy and healthy in this very strange Thanksgiving 2020. Uh, don't travel if you don't have to, folks. And if you do, um, you know, just safety, masks, social distancing, all that good stuff, you don't need to hear it from me. You know what's going on here. But uh, again, we hope that you are uh, safe and healthy this year for Thanksgiving. And uh, you're probably listening to this podcast then uh, Thanksgiving week. Maybe you're riding your bike. Maybe you're driving to friends or family's houses. Maybe you're ignoring your friends and family who are like watching football and you're you're sneaking a listen to the Velo News podcast either way. We welcome you, and we have a great episode for you today. We are talking today about the latest, I wouldn't say scandal, more of a story involving Zwift e-racing. And Zwift has recently disqualified two riders for, uh, not necessarily chicanery, but just um, rule violations. And this story sheds a larger light on um, Zwift's larger plans around professional racing and how it polices these e-races and the challenge involved in policing these e-races. And so we're gonna talk all about that. Then we're gonna talk about uh our Tour de France winner, uh Tade Pogachar and his off season with Andrew Hood, because uh Hoodie's been poking around about about what Tade, the Tade Bear is gonna be up to in the off season 2020 into 2021. Sounds like not a whole lot, which is probably a good thing for his 2021 Tour de France ambitions. Um, Then, second half of the show, I have an interview with Magnus Sheffield. That's right, friend of the podcast. You heard Magnus here a couple months ago. Magnus has set a new world record in the 3,000-meter junior men's individual pursuit. And Magnus takes us through this race, why he did it, how it was sort of like his plan B, plan C with the COVID-19 shutdown, he needed something to focus on. And he did this and, and crushed it. And um, just what it was like to ride that fast and that hard for three minutes. Um, hint, it hurt a lot. Um, joining me on the podcast today is Andrew Hood. And we have our resident Zwiftologist, Ben Delaney. Um, ben, you are also in Boulder, Colorado. Um, you, w- you woke up this morning... You saw snow on the ground, but it was no different from you because you're just like, I'm going to go ride 100 miles on Zwift just like every day, right?
1: Yeah. Greetings, everybody, from the winter wonderland that is Bullockrottle. Yes, I'm looking forward to not only talking about bike racing, but doing some bike racing. meeting up with all my teammates later today. We've got two squads, six guys each. It's a social experience. It's an athletic experience, and it's a socially distanced experience because we're all in our various garages or – or bedrooms, or wherever we can cram our smart trainers and smart bikes.
0: So I've been failing at Zwifting um, this throughout 2020. Ben, however, has been thriving. He holds a weekly news Zwift ride. I suggest everyone check that out. Go ride with Ben. Um, one of the reasons why I've been so bad at Zwift is that my little cave that I have my Zwift and stationary set up in, I sweat so dang much, Ben Delaney, that like after a couple of these indoor rides, it's 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 gross. It's bad. It's it's it's. You know, it, it it gets ugly. What advice do you have for me?
1: It, it's it's a pretty simple situation, Fred. I mean, I know you've got you know untold scores of fans out there in the real world, but you need to purchase yourself a box fan uh. for your house, and you know, or just put the <laughs> thing outside when it's twenty degrees, like it is now, and that'll help. Um, Andrew Hood
0: joining <laughs> us from Man Cave in Spain. Andrew, do you know what Andy? Do you know what Zwift is? You know what Zwift
2: is, right? <laughs> I, I do kind of know what it is. All I do know is that every time I ride with uh, Ben on the on a real bike, I get dropped on the rollout. So I can't imagine how bad I'd be embarrassed on a virtual experience where everyone could just see how bad I was getting dropped from any place in the world. But uh, yeah, I'm probably one of those few people that have not yet uh, joined the Zwift bandwagon. Uh, looking forward to maybe getting hooked up on a, one of these days. I'm, a, I'm old school, though, man. I like to ride outside. And if it's too cold, I just I just go to the bar. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so guys, the first story I want to talk about today on the podcast is this uh, Zwift sanction: two riders banned from Zwift for data manipulation. This was a story we had on VeloNews.com. Um, two riders, Lizzie Duncombe and Shawnee Berger, were both handed suspensions from competing in Zwift events for a six-month term for violating technology data recording and report recording reporting standards. You can read this story on VeloNews.com and a couple other places that explain... How um, Zwift has banned these two riders for data manipulation. Now Ben Delaney, when I read our story as well as a few other stories, um, after about two paragraphs into reading, my eyes glazed over, my tongue got dry, and I, I just had that like confused feeling of someone like reading VCR instructions. Where I was just like, I have no idea what's going on here. This is all written in Zwifties. There's all this discussion about file type sizes and, you know, w- what the heck happened and how Zwift determined that these two people should receive bans and uh, relegations. And so my first question for you is for the layman, for dum-dums like me, how would you describe how and why Zwift went about punishing these two writers?
1: Sure. I mean, the basic idea in this game or in this sport is like any other game, any other sport, that you have to have rules by which everyone plays, right? Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart. And the one of the, the trickier components of e-sports is that people are socially distanced by, by uh, continent sometimes um, – so the, the boundary lines aren't as simple as football or basketball is like where everybody can clearly see, Oh, Fred just stepped out of bounds. He's clearly out of bounds. Um, and the, the other complicating factor is the diversity of equipment. Um, a big part of how Zwift works is uh, a rider's power output. So having a power meter, whether that's on the bike or, or in the smart trainer, that's a big part of how the game works. The, The harder you pedal, the faster your little avatar goes, um, and the more serious the gaming becomes, uh, then the more important it is to, uh, ensure the, the, the levelest playing field possible. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll just, just have to do a deep dive into it to, <laughs> to explain what happened here, but on, that's just, again, there's, there's a spectrum of how serious, uh, these regulations are taken for most people myself included, who ride or race on Zwift. It's, it's basically a scout's honor thing, right? So there's power measurement is one piece of it. And you just assume that your power meter or your smart trainer is is measuring properly. That's one piece. Then there is the other scout's honor part of uh, entering your weight and your height accurately. Because the game is an algorithm that tries to replicate outdoor Physical conditions. And as, as we all know, the heavier you are, the harder it is to go uphill, the lighter it is. You know, Sepkus goes uphill better, in part because he's generating a huge amount of power, which a power meter will capture, and in part because he weighs, what, four kilos, five kilos sopping wet, right? So, since the game, uh, the game needs this information, and it's up to you to enter it. So, for most of us participating on Zwift, you just type it in um and one i think why this story has gotten so much attention is twofold one it's a, a spectator thing that you want to know what the best in the world are doing but also there's a lot of us dorking out doing this on our own and many of us will uh antagonize others about e-doping or zwift doping like oh you know hoodie you don't weigh 100 pounds like why are you putting your weight as this and you know or fred you're not actually three feet tall you know i've i've seen you outside you're you should be generating more wind drag than you're than you are in the game but then on for uh, elite racing, both Zwift and UCI have uh, pretty detailed regulations as to what you can and can't do and how you can verify this. Instead of it just being scouts' honor, you've got to video yourself weighing in. So you got to show your show the scale at zero. Show I don't this this may be the trickiest part of it all. Show a newspaper with the current date. How many of these erasers have newspaper subscriptions? I don't know.
0: If they're millennials, um, they don't know what a newspaper is.
1: Newspaper. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you're supposed to. You know, you have to video yourself weighing in. You have to video yourself uh, with a height measurement. So that's that's the way they're doing these things uh, to verify your physical dimensions. Uh, and then for the the critical power part, there's two pieces. You have to be on a smart trainer. Or a smart bike at the, this is again, like at the world championship level, like elite level thing. You have to be on a smart trainer or a smart bike. And, and that data is captured by the game. Then you have to have a secondary source that you capture that you then upload. So there's, there's a pretty big burden on each individual. So in addition, and not to mention monitoring, <laughs> you know, just complexity in addition to the finances. So, so say I've got my, my Wahoo kicker smart trainer, right? and that's going to that data is going to the game along with heart rate and cadence then you have to have a secondary source to verify this so you have to have a power meter on your bike and then a computer like a garmin that's capturing that data and then when the thing is over you have to upload that uh, just to sort of back up your data um, and what in the case of lizzie Duncan, what's what her story is that her garmin died part way through is a uh, something that all of, you know, the Andy hood writers and all the rest of us can relate to sometimes like your electronics crap out. (laughs) Um, and she didn't realize that during the event. Uh, and then later had a friend help her try to, uh, dig up the file. And he took some of the information from the Zwift file and her Garmin and then patched it together and uploaded that. And, uh, Zwift has a couple boards that look into cheating. Um, and they're like, "Uh, this has been monkeyed with. You've you've monkeyed with your data, and that's what uh, she was flagged for. And for both Zwift and UCI, they've got three tiers of uh, rule violations. There's intentional. I'm, I'm sorry, let me back up. There's non-intentional, like I I my you know computer glitched or I non-intentional stuff, right? Uh, maybe my power meter wasn't calibrated properly, but I'm not trying to cheat. There's intentional." where you say, I've been to anywhere, weigh 20 kilos <laughs> in order to get an advantage. Um, and then Zwift's third category, which I like the title, is doing things that bring the sport into disputes, uh, which is yeah, aggressively manipulating your hardware to cheat or uh, your data to cheat. And so this case is interesting. It seems like if this woman, if you take her statement at face value, she was just trying to compete. Something got sideways and then she tried to fix it. Uh, and in doing so, um, was flagged as intentionally manipulating data, even though it was her friend just trying to, to help her out was, it was what she maintained. So those are the three types of things. And so ironically, just to bring this all back around, the, the easiest, uh, way to have a, Level playing field competition in esports is to have everybody in the same place, and and the UCI in fact has two sets of rules for two types of esports competition. There's in real life esports, <laughs> which is uh, not meant to be ironic, where everybody is like you get everybody on a stage. You know, like we used to have roller derbies of you know people on uh, fixies and and rollers, right? so it's a, a spectator I mean you can see everybody on the same stage but you also you can get everybody on the same equipment you can have UCI commissaires there weighing people in all on the same weight scales um and then if something goes sideways it's more on the promoter than the athlete the athlete just shows up and and races their face off so that's one type but then the second type which is the whole point in my mind <laughs> or at least for the the layman the laywoman is to have competition that you can do anywhere that's the beauty of it right like it's Twenty degrees and snowing here in Colorado. I'm looking forward to racing in my garage because like racing outside is not a thing for COVID and for weather and all these things. Like the, the beauty of esports is that you can do it anywhere, any time. But the more serious the competition becomes, the higher the the burden of um, logistics falls on each individual rider. And so that's that's funny. Whether you're not funny, but yeah, it's a challenge for, for both pro athletes who typically have swan so years, handing them everything from their clean laundry to water bottles to try to figure out you know, to become their own like IT department or just for working stiffs uh, who are just looking to race and, and are not computer specialists themselves. It can be a little bit overwhelming, but the basic idea is like power is key and then the basic physical metrics of how tall you are and how much you weigh uh, affect the game; those those are those are vital, and you want to get those as honest as possible, and and um, have that verified uh, as thoroughly as possible. So that's what UCI and the Zwift are after. The yeah. Are.
0: And so this speaks to a, a larger story that we've been covering on the site for a while, which is you know Swift has these lofty ambitions of having a UCI World Championships, which they're going to have a Zwift Tour de France, which they had earlier this year. You know they want e-racing to be respected as a pro racing league. Eric Mann, the founder, wants it to be an Olympic sport someday, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in order to get to that point, you have to have results that carry weight. You have to have results that you can verify that people have trust in. And, you know, beyond the pretty pictures that you see on the Zwift screen and the racing that you watch and the figures going back and forth, there's there's just still some debate, I feel like, out there about um, how easy it is to manipulate the data and manipulate the hardware for people to gain an advantage. Like if you talk to anyone who races Zwift regularly, at some point they're going to talk about, oh, you know, like I was just getting dropped by some guy on a flat road who, you know, I suspect they were like cheating on their weight. Or there's there's just like, there's there's always that hint of like, wait, is this, um, is this legitimate or is this untoward? And so Zwift has done and invested a ton in the last year of trying to boost its infrastructure around results verification and, quote, unquote, Zwift anti-doping or data, you know, whatever, to try and make the results legitimate, especially in these pro elite races. And to me, the interesting thing there has been it's um, it's kind of a moving target for them. You know, two years ago, it was like, hey, you got to have, you know, your power source and it could be a power meter or it could be a smart trainer. And you know Scouts honor, and then earlier this year it was like now for these elite races it's dual recording, you know it's power meter and smart trainer, and you know weigh-ins and all this stuff, and and then even throughout this year we saw the protocols for verification change, and um, I wrote a story earlier this year talking about how these two athletes who had had results annulled. Kind of got caught up in it, which was, you know, one rider, Megan Rathwell, she was so happy she would won the Zwift race and had these power outputs that were best ever. And Zwift, you know, kind of put her through the ringer and determined that her power meter or her smart trainer was over-reporting, that it wasn't calibrated correctly. And that was one of those, what you said, Ben, like a no harm, no fault, you know, like this wasn't inten- not this intentional. Was non-intentional. Non-intentional. Yeah, but she still lost the result and – they still put out a press release saying, hey, you know, this was she's no longer the winner. And I think the unfortunate thing there from a messaging standpoint is that since it's the cycling community and we're used to looking at decisions like that with an arched eyebrow, like Megan talked about how people were like harassing her online and starting to follow her on Strava and giving her a hard time and this, that, and the other. And that was for a non-intentional one. Um, this one, the press release. It's sort of like it's pointing a finger and saying this was manipulation, this was more intentional. And so um, you know, Lizzie Duncan released this statement on her social media, really blasting Zwift, saying, Hey, this was, you know, I kind of feel like this is not this is a non intentional thing, and Zwift, you know, released this at a, you know, long after I thought that I thought this whole ordeal was past us and put out this press release in a way that, you know, is very accusatory and my reputation has been tarnished and all this stuff. And so I see this latest story as a real escalation in this longer process of results verification, because, um, you know, this gal, if you Google her name now, it's like Zwift annulment and sort of uh, accusations of Zwift cheating, like, that's where we're at with it now, which I think is really interesting. Um, and like you said, Ben, I mean, with these elite racing, it's like there's five grand up for grabs in these Zwift classics races. There's a bunch of prize money up for grabs in the upcoming Zwift World Championships. Like I saw some yeah. people online talking about how 8,000,
1: oh Zwift francs for the win. Yeah,
0: it's like, oh, Zwift cheating is so pathetic. Like, I can't think of anything more ridiculous. And it's like, really? You know, like that's there's some shekels up for grabs here, folks. Like I mean, I don't, I don't think it's ridiculous. I think it's, you know, I, th- I think it's pretty logical, actually.
1: Well, I, I, I would come at it from a, from a different angle than trying to justify why cheating makes sense. But yes, it's still humans are involved. Human nature is involved in whether it's going for money or uh, just some random writer in their garage with, a, with an ego at play. People want to do well.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, you sa- I, like I said, it's sort of the human nature thing of like anytime there's stakes – in an event, um, people are going to, you know, there's the, there's the potential for something like this. I mean, if you read this gal Lizzie Duncombe's explanation, she also talked about how, you know, ah, you got a secondary paracerus height to weight video, bah, 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 bah. the pressure of maintaining race weight and the fact of trying to lose weight for these Zwift races has caused not only me, but many of the girls I ride with to develop an eating complex and weight complex. This is especially true during lockdown where there's so many pressures and issues to deal with. It has played a key part with anxiety and negative obsessive behavior. Um, yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty strong rock that she threw back at Zwift saying that this, this weight thing um, is... You know, the the, pressure, the the pressures to conform to Zwift's racing standards are very hard. I heard that from Megan Rathwell, too, from a cost perspective. She said, you know, hey, I kind of got into this thing because I thought it would be fun. And the next thing I know, I'm like having to buy all this equipment and have, you know, emails back and forth with these people who are, you know, analyzing my result. And then at the end of the day, I have my result annulled and people harassing me online. Like, what's the – why would I – you know, she, she left the whole thing being like, I – I don't want any part of this. I'm i a retired writer. I did this for fun and like I feel kind sure. of burned.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean there's some cases yeah, – and nobody likes the cops until they need the cops. <laughs> and and there's some cases where it appears that the letter of the law was applied instead of the spirit of the law. But that's how the law has to be applied unfortunately, right? Um, I mean it, it seems like UC, UCI and Zwift are trying to – Gauge this with the three tiers of intentional, non intentional, um, and and with this most recent case, it wasn't that the power reported on Swift was through the roof, and that part was not manipulated. Swift isn't saying that, but it was like the the secondary backup thing was, um, and there the letter of law is yeah you can't manipulate your data, <laughs> and her data was manipulated. Um, so in, in this case, in some ways, they're both right. She's like, I'm not, wasn't trying to cheat. I was just trying to get you guys what you wanted. And they're saying, you broke the law, which was you can't manipulate the data.
0: Okay, here's a quick hardware, a dumb, dumb question for you, Ben. Like, yeah. I mean, other than lying about your weight, what are ways in which you could like rig the system or cheat? Like, what are the specific ways that Zwift is trying to keep an eye out for for cheating? Sure.
1: Yeah. And this could quickly get over my head, but the, 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 basic, the basic ways would be the self-report to say that you're lighter and smaller than you actually are. Right. Um, because as you guys know, high power weight ratio, that's, that's what it's about. And, um, Zwift has some pretty detailed, uh, catches built into the game where it, uh, folks there know, but through working with you know experts like Andy Kogan, Hunter Allen, uh, people who have studied power for decades, um, what world-class power outputs are for these different durations, you know, 15 second, one minute, five minute, 20 minute power. Um, and the game will flag you if you exceed those, or if you get close to those. So guys like Lawson Craddock, for instance, have gotten little in-game notifications like, Hey, you missed your calling. You must have, you should have been a professional. And you're like, Oh, funny. You should say that. So things like that, I, I find encouraging that, Hey, the game is working. Um, and w- when writers are known to be professionals by the game, that's taken into account. Um, so I think those those pieces are working.
0: But what about like hardware manipulation? You hear like, oh, could you, you know, sure. monkey with the power meter or I don't know, sure. take your smart trainer and throw it in a fish tank and it's gonna read twice as much or something.
1: Yes. And and you you can manipulate the hardware and that's why that's like the third tier no-no <laughs> for both of these. And that's also why there's uh, the stipulation for a secondary source, because it just makes it that much harder to, without being a mechanical engineer to monkey with a smart trainer and monkey with a power meter to read higher than they should, but also match each other second per second. And that's what I'm assuming, uh, Zwift's ZADA, the Zwift Accuracy and Data Analysis Group does, is they'll take these two. If they suspect something is off because it's being super high, they'll take the secondary thing, overlay them, and if if they don't match up, then that could be an indication that something is amiss. Uh, But part of like the pre-race registration for high-level events like World Championships include, in addition to uh, giving them all this data about your body, uh, you also have to give them a ton of data about your equipment um so listing the make model serial number etc of the your smart trainer and your power meters uh giving them the calibration info the slope information for the power meters um which in my perspective at least makes it just much much harder <laughs> for someone who's not a mechanical engineer to both monkey with it and get away with it that said you know the the robbers are often as we know in cycling a a step or two ahead of the cops but it just uh uci and zwift are, are doing what they can to mess with i mean you could you could you know tell your power meter that you know the crank length is different than um than it is to generate slightly higher or you know change the the temperature um so it reads slightly higher um so that that stuff all can be done I suppose and just like with a video away and you could be like hanging from a pole when you stand on your scale when you're filming yourself so like I suppose like with anything you, you, you can try to get around the rules but you know Zwift has two two big rules up top and it's sort of like gravel racing rules one is be nice to other people and the other is don't cheat <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's kind of what they're after. And again, like the the best way if with Zwift Worlds this year, everyone is on a, a tax Neo Two T. Everyone is on the same smart trainer, which is a, a good start. Um, even just for just let's say most racers who are doing this aren't trying to cheat. They're pros that are looking to do something in December, right? Um, and just having some of that complexity taken out, and having Garmin just ship these trainers to their door. They put their bike on, they go, that's, that's a nice thing. Having them all done in person would be would be a, an easier way to go about it. Hmm.
0: Well, be nice to everybody and don't cheat. Hoodie, what do you think? Uh, should the Tour de France just change its rule book to have uh, those two big statements at the top of it? Would that uh, put our minds at ease? <laughs> yeah,
2: like that would do a lot of good at the Tour de France. Well, maybe these days. Maybe these days it would. But it's, it's interesting, though, to hear about uh, the Zwift. You know, it's really the e-racing is really the kind of the new frontier of cycling. I'm just kind of curious, Ben, I mean, what, how many people, when you do your racing league, how many people are actually doing it? And what's the expectation for the world championships? Cody, everybody's doing it, man.
1: I'm just going to lay some peer pressure on you. So for instance, um, yeah, I'm dorking out. I'm, I'm a complete evangelical about this these days. So for instance, I'm in a, I'm in a league, ZTRL league. There's 32 divisions, uh, So like a thousand, about a thousand teams are in this with five to six riders per team. Uh, The same organization puts on a Thursday night time trial that each week pulls in about four or 5,000 riders. And that's just, you know, one, one group. So there's, I don't know when obviously COVID has affected us, but when, when was the last time you were at a local race that had 7,000 riders (laughs) showing up week in, week out. So yeah, there's a lot of folks and that's for me that that's one of the the coolest things is being able to connect with writers like on the squad I'm with, with stage Cycling, there's, you know, there's people in Australia, there's people in Oregon, there's people, in different, different towns around Colorado. And you you get to have this type of interaction uh, where it's not just chatting, but just like playing pickup basketball, there's a difference between shooting baskets by yourself, which is kind of, I think how some people see Zwift is like, Oh, it's graphics. Neat. I'm just still in my garage. There's a difference between shooting baskets by yourself and playing a game of basketball, where what Fred does affects what Andy does, affects what Ben does, and how we compete against another team. So, and, and on, at that level, it's it's heart rate is it's one of the ways that's you can peek and see what other people are doing. And transparency is a big thing. So even for our for this little league that I'm a part of, when you register, you have to put yourself on Zwift Power, which records all your data, and so you can go and see what Fred has done in prior races and what his ballpark Watts per kilo is for 20 minutes. 20 minutes is like the sort of a, a standard and not just races, but rides are done on that Watts per kilo thing. Um, and that's how classifications are done. So if somebody's suspected of being a little too good, usually they just, they just get bumped up into the next category and that's fine. And if they get to be world-class exceptional, the game will flag them. And they're probably racing at a higher level where they have to have these secondary sources. But for most people, just showing up with a power meter or a smart trainer and a heart rate monitor, that's adequate. Playing Mortal Kombat
0: with friends in Vietnam. You guys remember the uh, cable guy reference there for early internet? Anyway, that's what it reminds me of. Swift, uh, we're going to continue following this story because I have no doubt that in the lead up to Zwift World Championships coming up here, December eighth, um, there's going to be more news and more wrinkles around not just the Zwift sanctions, but how Zwift is policing these big marquee events. Because, yeah, oh, hoodie, like you said, I mean, there, this is the, the this is the big new thing. I I do think that e-racing is going to support a thriving professional league and a spectator league at some point in the near future. Um, but the way in which Zwift irons out its process for sanctioning riders and policing the events, I think, is the bedrock on which all of this thing um, is going to be uh, built. So, Ben Delaney, Zwiftologist, Zwift scientist, VeloNews's Zwift ride leader. When, where, where can people? Uh, when and where can people do these Zwift rides with you? Anywhere in the world. Well, no, that is that where. Is specifically the when, VeloNews when, ones.
1: Wednesdays. Yeah, uh, we we kick it off. Colorado Mountain Time, uh, usually 9 a.m. And if you're on Zwift, just looking at the companion app is the way to find events and join us. We uh, often bring in uh, pro riders. We've had pro riders from the outdoor world, you know, former world champs like uh, Mari Holden. Uh, and then we've had the, you know, indoor champs like Holden Camus have joined us. And, you know, Ted King, Tom uh, Tom Sklingens. We've had all, all manner of riders. So it's a good place to not just uh, ride, but to chat with other riders and pro riders.
0: Awesome. Do it. Come ride with us. Uh, hey, Hoodie, while we got you here, um, I read your piece on Velenews.com about Tade Pogachar and the off-season that he is uh, getting ready to embark on and why that is so different because of COVID-19 than the off-season that a Tour de France champion normally embarks on. Um, take us through Tade's off-season and what is not going to be involved in it.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, Fred, because because of COVID, because of the pandemic and all the travel restrictions and social distancing, et cetera, uh, Pogachar basically is just sitting at home like everybody else in the world. And that's different than any real Tour de France winner in the last, you know, God knows last uh, 100 years, right? When you win the Tour de France, you are fitted, you're on chat shows, you're going to awards dinners, you're going to sponsor functions, you're doing media activities you're going all over the world doing uh you know then like uh going to meet your sporting uh heroes leo messi or you know watching a go watching a game or you know just celebrating your victory and uh, every year after 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 every tour de france that really becomes an issue because um that takes away from the monistic lifestyle that is required of being a professional cyclist so we've seen over the years you know a, a rider wins the tour kind of goes on a three or four month binge and then they're having a real hard time chasing back their form in time for next July. So it was interesting talking to Alan Piper, you know, who was the, one of the key sport directors for uh, Pogakshire this year at the tour. And he was saying that that could be a real difference going into 2021. Just the fact that Pogakshire is, is really just having probably the quietest off season of a tour winner for a long, long time.
0: I love this story. Um, first of all, poor Poor, poor Pogacar. I mean, I I want him to go on all the Slovenian chat shows and like go hang out at Slovenian underground raves and, you know, be on like Slovenian Dancing with the Stars and all the cool stuff that should come to a Tour de France champion that he's going to miss out on because of this global pandemic. But yeah, I mean, you're right. It's like I I love following Tour de France champion's. Social media feeds in the months after his tour win, because like you know, with Bernal, it was like he's back home and everyone in Colombia is out on a big parade for him, and he's sort of like heroes welcome, and uh, having a good time. The the one that really got me was um, Garrett Thomas, because Garrett Thomas, like you know, his pictures of him drink drinking these huge like goblets of heavy beer and going to Lakers games and yeah, meeting Leo Messi and shaking hands with Magic Johnson and having good meals and really reveling in this huge accomplishment, which, Hey, you know, you should go revel in that accomplishment. That's a huge, huge thing. But like you said, um, drinking goblets of beer and going and uh, rubbing shoulders with Magic Johnson and Leo Messi, not always the best way to prepare for um, a tour de France defense. So, (laughs) Poor Pogacar, he's, he's going to be riding swift in his basement um, or, you know, just going on long rides and socially distancing himself because he can't go meet like the king of
2: Slovenia or whatever ruler they have. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's going to be a very different offseason for Pogacar. And I mean, right now, the team, they, they, they really haven't mapped out his racing season yet next year. Uh, they are saying that, you know, the rough plan is for him to defend his title. Obviously, the yellow jersey is going to be the center of a season. And then the Olympics are right there stacked up behind uh, the tour. And, of course, everything is dependent on what happens with COVID. You know, we got some vaccines coming down the pipeline. So hopefully, the next year's racing season will kind of go off with its traditional dates. But with uh, with the team, with Pagasha, you know, talking to Alan Piper, he, another thing that really stood out to me was he, how he was saying that uh, he hasn't changed as a person. So at least, you know, from when he came in, First pro season last year, 2019, you know, won three stages and finished third at that Vuelta España last year, you know, really just put his stock through the roof. And when he, what he really noticed when Pogashia came into the team, you know, the team camps this year in, in uh, 2020 leading up toward the tour, even after how everything was disrupted, just how uh, calm and relaxed he is. He says that he really has his feet in the ground. So he's going to be, Pipers is saying he's going to be curious to see how he can really handle. The pressure that does come with winning a tour, right? Because, you know, it's one thing to finish third on the podium at the Weltam. Okay, you have the potential to maybe do something someday. But then to deliver and win the tour in the way that he did this past uh, – in September, you know, that just puts Pogachar really into the stratosphere. So, you know, will he be kind of the same easygoing young kind of happy-looking kid? Or we kind of cop an attitude or maybe, you know, now I'm the big boss. You know, I'm calling the shots here. So that's always that's always the big challenge for every tour winner, right? It's just getting your head around everything that comes with winning that race. Because we have seen in the past, you know, Jan Ulrich, everyone said, oh, man, he's going to win five tours in a row. He could be the first one to win six. And he won one. So, and we saw Bernal, uh, you know, last year he won that tour in such a dramatic way. And the way that he kind of just burst onto the scene on Sky Train, everyone thought Bernal was just going to knock off one tour after another. And man, he just got smothered by Yombo uh, Visma this year. So nothing is ever guaranteed. So, a big part of his future success will be how he gets his head around being a Tour de France champion.
0: Yeah, and I love, you know, you look at the history of Tour de France champions and you see these eras of one rider dominance followed by eras where it's like a different rider wins every single year as the sport almost searches for its next rider to be the rider of dominance. And, you know, we just came off of Chris Froome winning four tours in uh, six years and then it's like Garrett Thomas, Egan Bernal, Tadej Pogacar, and who next? So I'm with you, you know, whether or not we are in an era of single Tour de France winners, an era of upheaval in between uh, rider dominance, or if we are now entering the Tadej Pogachar era, um, that's, that's something that like this off season is going to tell us. Um, but yeah, you know, I guess I just don't see him really as the guy who's going to be doing the all-nighters and like, you know, going to raves in, uh, all over Europe uh, and, and partying like, you know, there's no tomorrow. Um, something tells me that that guy is going to be ready for next year. The big question is whether his competition is going to be ready for next year and whether anyone is going to like, uh, you know, allow him to um, have one of these week three stage 20 complete shows of dominance or whether the whole Peloton is going to, you know, wake up to the fact that like, hey, you can't let this guy um, hang around until the third week, of uh, you know, the final time trial of the tour. You got to squash him early. Uh, but that's a whole other, that's a story we're going to follow in 2021. Another story we're going to follow in 2021 is Remco, Evanapool and his comeback. And he had some quotes today or this week anyway, about how his comeback is coming. He said he is looking lean and mean um, and, you know, real jazzed up for 2021. What do you make of this uh, latest round of Remco um, interviews and perspective on his comeback?
2: Yeah, the thing that struck me was just uh, looking how lean and mean he really actually is. He, he, I saw in an interview on Sports. I he says, "Oh yeah, I lost uh, five kilos. You know, a lot of it was uh, muscle mass through atrophy, but he also said he really watched his diet during this uh, recuperation time. You know, three months off the bike. You know, you expect anybody to kind of go soft in that time, but then I saw pictures of the guy. Man, he looks really thin. He looks thinner than he ever has. And he and he called. He said a lot of that weight is his baby fat that he called it because." When you did see pictures of uh Remco, you know, it kinda had that kind of youthful pudginess that uh usually gets, you know, frayed off after a couple of years in the in the world tour. Um, you know, everyone's really hoping that that uh he's coming back full strength for twenty twenty one. And he had such a great season I and mean, he won every stage race he started in twenty twenty before he crashed that at La Maria. And, of course, there was so much hype around his planned to uh, start of the Giro last year. You know, how good that Giro might have been had Remco been there? So the big question mark really going into next season for Remco is, you know, is he going to be the same Remco? How will this whole experience change him? You know, will it make him, you know, sometimes a, a bad crash like that can knock someone off balance almost permanently sometimes? Or is he going to come back even more motivated and hungrier than ever before? And, you know, which grand tour is he going to do? There were some quotes out there that he might – um, you know, the Olympics are obviously a, a big part of his season next year. He has a pretty good chance. Uh, and the time trial, you know, with Philippe Ogana really bursting onto the scene this year, it might take some thunder out of his gold medal hopes there in the time trial for Remco. But, you know, he definitely have a medal shot. Uh, even for a country like Belgium, any medal is a pretty big deal. And, uh, you know, does he do the tour or does he do the Giro? Personally, I think he'll probably race the Giro. Um, you know, send uh, you know doing that tour Olympics back to back might be a little bit too much for him coming off an injury, but um, encouraging news out of Spain this week. He's been down in Calpe, down there on the Mediterranean coast. He did 750k his first week. You know, good solid week. He's gonna be down there another full week, and then uh, that really kind of sets him up going into the offseason and, and being ready to race. He said he might be at uh, Volta Val- Valenciana, which is uh, February. Not not very long from now, you know, about 60, 70 days. Yeah, he's
0: another guy I'm not worried about, like, going to the club and getting blasted every night. First of all, I don't know if he's old enough, too. All these kids, they're, like, uh, 17 years old. They're going to get carded wherever they go. Plus, both Remco and uh, Tade, boyish faces. Like, you look extra hard at the ID for both of those guys. Check the birth date. Like, are they really uh, old enough to be in here? I don't, I don't know. But uh, Remco, I, you know... I my fear with him, you know, there's always the fear of the, the coming back too soon from something like that. So um, I just hope they're exercising caution and letting the body heal and not putting too much emphasis on weight. I mean, I, as much as, you know, it's okay, it's gr- great to see the guy didn't like lose his form or whatever as he's recovering from injury. All that emphasis placed on weight and trying to lose weight. I'm like, man, you're only 20, whatever. Like you have plenty of you got plenty of time to figure that stuff out, and all those young cyclists out there. You got you you, you don't don't starve yourself. You're fit. You're fit and healthy just the way you are, um, guys. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, uh, Andy Hood. We will catch up with you next week. Ben Delaney, go ride Zwift with Ben Delaney. He will drop you. No, he won't. He no. Won't. It's a social ride. He will chat with you, and he will ask you many questions, and you may get dropped like me. Um, <laughs> But guys, let's, uh, we have Magnus Sheffield coming up next uh, part of the podcast to take us inside his 3K Individual Pursuit world record. Let's hear from Magnus now. All right, and now joining the podcast, it's friend of the podcast, Magnus Sheffield, making his second appearance on the Villainees podcast. And this time, he has quite a story to tell because Magnus just broke the national. And I believe world record in the 3,000-meter junior men's individual pursuit. Can we say it's a new world record now? Magnus, has it been certified?
3: Uh, um, I think it's still pending. Uh, we have all the paperwork filed for the national record, and I think once USA Cycling is able to approve that. And then um, I'm not sure if we have to wait for the lab results from USADA,
0: but um, I think we've done everything that we can, and we just have to wait and see. Awesome. Magnus, give us the backstory. Why did you want to set out and break this record? And what did the prep look like?
3: Yeah, so uh, it started about a year year ago. Uh, I went to an ODP camp um, after I emailed uh, some head people at USA Cycling. And I told them, uh, how interested I, or kind of like my interest in this project. And then, um, I flew out to California and I, uh, qualified to do that, or I did a bunch of qualifiers and, um, I made like the ODP camp, uh, or a team, however that works. And then, um, obviously the COVID situation started. So, um, it didn't really, I, I knew I wanted to do this after Junior Worlds, Road Worlds, but I didn't actually think, um, that was like the only thing I was going to do this year. And so um, I didn't necessarily like fully commit to this until about like end of July uh, when uh, Road Worlds was officially canceled. Um, and I flew out to Colorado uh, at the kind of mid-August. And then I was just there for uh, a couple of weeks just trying to get into the OTC because uh, obviously I'm not on the Olympic long team. Um, so I stayed at like Jeff Pierce and Mike Creed's house and uh, I was just training, um, trying to get in. And, um, once I had all the, the equipment, uh, figured out, um, then it was just kind of trying to nail down like an official date, getting the right people in the right place. So like getting the officials, um, and so kind of like the lead up to it was, um, this entire year I've been training for road worlds and then it wasn't until like, um, september like the second weekend in september that i actually started training full-time on the track and so the hardest thing for me was just um getting the experience and like perfecting like the the technique aspect of it so like the standing starts from the gate the line uh, if you're riding the black line or the water line and being really smooth with it um and so that was like the hardest thing or like the biggest hurdle i had to overcome uh was just that uh inexperience i had on the track uh, I knew I had the power. I knew I had the position. All the, I had the equipment, clothing, like all that was dialed is just um, trying to get comfortable on the track.
0: Yeah, I think it's cool. I mean, this is sort of like the, the fastest known time stories we've been reporting on at com of rice, racers whose races have been canceled. So they go out and like try to set up fastest known time on like the White Rim or something. And it, that's like it mm-hmm. is with you. You wanted to race Road Worlds and Nationals, had this big racing schedule. And when all that was called off, for uh covid it's like well what's Mm -hmm. the fastest known time how about the world record in the three thousand meter individual pursuit yeah
3: no no. um as like kind of how i got the idea is like um all the races were canceled and i just said all right like i kind of thought about doing this record a year ago and like i didn't necessarily like have the time or resources and so then i sat down and i wrote everything down like what I needed, how I was going to fund it, what people I needed to be involved. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. And so I built like this team around me. So, um, my coach, Brian Waltland, Toby Stanton with hot tubes. Like I brought Oziel to bring in their support to help fund this project. Uh, Robbie Ketchell was the scientist that helped me with the pacing and then also, uh, creating the perfect environment to set this record. Um, and then Gary Sutton, everyone at to cycling, Jeff Pierce, Jim Miller, um, all these guys that were more like on the ground helping me out, like when I was in Colorado and helping me set this up. Um, and also like I have a huge thanks to like everyone at the OTC for, um, like all the staff members and also like my teammates, uh, like they were, like, like everyone was super cool with me coming in because like, um, I was like, it's only the Olympic team that I'm able to train right now at the velodrome. And they, they were, they were completely like, um, open to me coming and train with them, which was super awesome. I think a lot of cases, like, people would be kind of um, negative or, like, not necessarily as welcoming. Uh, But everyone was super cool with that. Um, So, yeah, like, uh, the projects, like, it took a lot of effort. And, like, at one point, like, I was trying to train in Colorado and then go down to Aguas Calientes. um, And, unfortunately, it was just the organization and trying to communicate with people, unfortunately things just kind of fell through. Um, And like, at one point I tried to go down. I was trying to go down there to race in their nationals. Um, Even though like I would be the national champion of Mexico, I could compete because there's two ways to set records in competition or to set up an event. And uh, it was very difficult at first to get like the officials to set up an event because there's the UCI, they need four months. So all the our record rules apply to any kind of record, junior or elite. Um, so you have to be in the water testing pool for at least four months. You have to tell the UCI four months in advance. It's like there's all these hoops you have to jump through, which made it really difficult. Meanwhile, like if you do it in competition, there's none of that. Um, and so that's what I was trying to do. But that unfortunately didn't happen. So um, I was able to kind of get exemptions from um getting officials there. And that's the one thing that might be a hiccup, like with the UCI is like, all right, I'm in the uh, WADA testing pool. And like I, instead of it being for, I was in it for four months, but there's no junior in the world that's on the, that's in the national testing pool. Um, and so that's the one thing that I guess they could deny it. Um, however, like I had electronic timing. I had USADA to take samples afterwards. And then I also had a commissaire to do the UCI bike check. So the bike was legal. Everything in the Velodrome was legal. We had the sponges in the corners. It was um as official as it could be.
0: That's cool. And you had to set this all up on your own. I you know, again, chapeau to you. This wasn't just about training and getting your mm-hmm. legs right. This was a huge logistical undertaking. So the three thousand meter individual pursuit, you know, it's yep. a three minutes and change effort. Um, yep. How would you describe the effort um, just as like an exertion of strength? What's the effort like?
3: Yeah, it's like sprinting for th- all out for three minutes. Um, like you're doing a standing start. So I guess it's kind of similar to like a cycle cross start. Uh, it's not rolling um, with like in a road race. So it's all out uh, for about 15 seconds out of the saddle. And then you're settling into uh, your time trial or pursuit position. Um, and so what's interesting though is that, um, the way the power curve works is like, obviously it's a max sprint in the beginning, and then you're settling in at this, uh, max VO2, 120 plus percent FTP. And then what happens is because on a track bike, it's a fixed gear, so there's no brakes, there's one gear, um, and you can't coast. So what happens is you're getting, you're winding up this gear and you're getting up the speed. Um, and so there's, Once you get up to speed, there's no slowing down. Um, and it takes a little little bit, but, uh, what happens is you apply this, there's a big power curve. And then what happens is it, like, it drops down once you settle into the position. And then as you get up to that, whatever peak or that target power and cadence, the power or speed and cadence, that power curve or that power actually drops down a bit because the gear starts turning itself over, uh, which is unique, like, unlike a road bike. Um, or, like, a classic drivetrain. Um, and so, like, the effort, like, it's really just, like, max effort. Like, you're just going as hard as you can for three minutes. But, of course, like, if you were to go outside and you tried to sprint, like, if you if you go fully all out, like, you're going to fade at the end. But then if you start out too slow, you're going to have still, like, some energy in the tank at the end. So it's this very, very precise um, effort where it's, like, uh, it's, it's very hard to really, um, measure, but it just takes time and like a lot of simulations and training where, um, you're trying to s- simulate that, um, max effort, that long, um, extended sprint really is what the way I see it relative to like the time trial that's 30 minutes, 45 minutes, or even an hour.
0: Well, I think that's really interesting because I think that some, cyclists when they read about an effort like this or they see it they're like oh well it's just a process of going out and going as hard as you can for that distance Mm -hmm. and no it's this very precise effort level that you're trying to hit in the race without a computer you're not staring at a wattage number you're doing it by feel and you're doing it by feel having done it by feel numbers of times in training and hitting that it's it's real tricky. It sounds like it's not as easy as uh as one might assume.
3: No, I, I was like a bit I guess naive. Like I thought it was like, "Alright, you just like get out there and just freaking like hit it hard." Um, but yeah, it's like you said, like you can't just stare at a power. Like you're not looking at a display. It's all by feel and you get to hear lap times or see lap times depending on like what your preference is. Um, but yeah, it's it's really not as simple as many people think. And at the same time, you're thinking about, all right, how do I ride the cleanest line? Um, where do I look in the bend? And obviously, you're going in a circle. Um, so you're also experiencing uh, quite high G-forces because you're going 60 plus K an hour. Um, and so it's also, you ride a double disc, which I had never done before. I'd ridden a rear disc, but the front disc is a very different sensation. Uh, but like you said, like, uh, when I look back at the effort, like I started very, very hard. And um I think that was kind of due to like the conditions were so good on that day. And like, you don't always train on that, that full race setup. Um You train on like with slower wheels, slower skin suit or just clothing. And also there's not like the, the adrenaline isn't the same. Um So that like all, there's all these factors that kind of come into race day that you can't necessarily always plan for. But when you're doing your pacing strategy, you try to like incorporate that into it however um yeah like on race day like you just kind of have to go with it and um like we talked about earlier like in that article is like my schedule was to go out fast and then slowly pick up the pace and what happened is like i went out my first kilometer actually almost i almost broke the junior um uh standing kilo record i was a 10th off that um And then I went an additional two kilometers after, and so like my my first kilo was just it was blistering fast, and it was faster than I anticipated and I would have liked. But um, like my coach Gary, like he said, like you there's no slowing down. Like once you get that gear up to speed, you just have to hold on. So it's either maintaining or increasing the speed. And I didn't really feel like the effort was nine laps. Uh, and so I felt like I didn't really settle in. into so like four laps in and then I only had five laps left. Uh, and so really my strategy to go into it was, all right, start fast, settle down. And then once I see four, uh, kilometers or four laps to go, that's when you want, it's like, best way I can, um, describe it is like, if you're driving a car and you're slowly pressing the accelerator to accelerate half mile an hour, um, like a second or, um, in duration, it's, it's very much like, uh, those people that are listening, like, if you ever, uh, driven like a scooter or like motor pace someone, it's very difficult to keep steady, but even just like slowly increase the speed. And that's really like the art behind, um, this effort, um, whether it's the 3K, 4K, and, um, these like short but very intense efforts.
0: So you started fast, a little bit faster Mm -hmm. than you had hoped to, but like you said, there's no slowing down at that point. You just got to hold on. Um, Take us through the last two laps because this was the part that I thought was really interesting. We talked about this before, Mm -hmm. you know, you're at maximum two laps to go and all of a sudden your body starts reacting in a very specific way.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. So like with four laps to go, like that's when I'm like, all right, like you're constantly just telling yourself like stay cool like you you want to have that positive self-talk and you're just telling yourself like keep pushing like remain cool like take a deep breath even though you're like your heart rate is just through the roof like take a deep breath uh stay cool and like with four laps to go that's when I saw it I'm like all right this is when you want to slowly increase like slowly put the foot on the accelerator and then three laps to go like I still like I was still kind of feeling good, and, like, I could still see pretty well, and, um, like, the lactate was building up, but it didn't really feel like, I didn't feel super heavy yet, but it's when I had two laps to go, like, I knew I was so close, but in the three-minute effort, like, a lot of people are like, oh, that's going to be, like, three, the longest three minutes of your life, but the reality is it was the longest two laps of my life, Um, and I knew I just had to hold on, and that's when, like, you're at such a high pace and like the lactate is just through the roof, especially the pace that I set the first two kilometers. And that's when, um, I mean, (laughs) the best way to describe it is just look like looking through a straw or like you just have this like circle that's like slowly dwindling away and you're just trying to stay focused because on the track, like I'm trying to ride, ride as straight of a line as possible, especially through the bend. Um, and that's, at that point, like I could just feel like how heavy my legs felt and my cadence did drop, I think like four or five RPM. Um, but I knew like it was only, it's, it's only two laps. And like after you, you can almost do anything for two laps. So at that point, like I had reached the point where like, all right, I'm, I've given it my all and I'm still at like, I don't know, <laughs> um one, one and a half laps to go and i said all right matt like i thought like i talk to myself all the time and it's like all right you just have to push just like that extra bit because deep down like you know you have it uh within you and it's just like th- that's that fine line where it's like you can't go any further but you truly can it's just your body's just like when you go that deep your body's telling you everything it's a survival kind of instinct i think where Um, your body is trying to protect itself and say, all right, slow down. Like, like you need to take a breath. Um, but if you're able to tell yourself, like when you get to that point, just go a little bit harder. That's when you're really able to use like your full potential or your full, you're using your full abilities, I think. Um, and yeah, like (laughs) it's, it's super hard. It's easy to say it's very hard to actually do. And put it
0: into motion. Yeah, you had tunnel vision, your whole body's shutting down, your legs are heavy, all you want to do is quit and you found a way to give it more gas. I mean, I think that is, you know, walking up to that line, getting up to that line is hard enough. But then mm-hmm. having the physical and mental fortitude to be able to push through that line and push through that envelope. Like you mm-hmm. said, I mean, that's sort of the difference between a personal best and a world record. Um, what, yep. what lessons are you going to take from this experience that you will now apply to your uh, racing career going forward?
3: Yeah, like like I said earlier, like as well as like the track experience is invaluable, like uh, to like a rider like me. Just overall, like um, I think it's just it's helped so much. Like I motor pace every session, just about, and like it's just speed work in the position. And I think that's huge because a lot of people lack that time and that high intensity speed um and so i was able to do that for two or three months um and i thought that was perfect um and it was like usually i'm doing a lot longer duration so uh being able to perfect that that um shorter intense effort i think was also super beneficial because i think a lot of times like i'm doing like longer threshold efforts and this was all max vo2 plus and so i think that also helps um build that, um, physical strength as well. Uh, but from a mental aspect, like I think it was, I I learned so much in terms of like logistics, preparation, coordination, like with, um, reaching out to people, being able to know exactly what I need and what I don't need, especially is like, uh, um, I felt like, (sighs) I had a lot of people that helped me, but I also had to like I had to coordinate a lot of things as well. And so I found out like all right, I don't need like a big like fan base or like I don't need people there watching me cheering me on. Like I'm I'm totally comfortable just going out there and hammering it out myself. Like I don't necessarily I some people want their parents there, like I couldn't, but I also knew like I didn't need that and like the mental support um as well as I think a lot of it was like is really tough because I'd gone like September, October, November, and I constantly thought like, all right, next week I'm doing the effort, but in in reality it just kept on getting pushed off and pushed off, and it taught me how to be really patient um but also um, just kind of trust the process and uh, continue grinding.
0: Well Magnus congratulations. We will wait to see what the UCI has to say about your time, but uh, first well finally what's what was your final time as compared to the other records out there?
3: Yeah, so my final time was a 306 447. Um, it was about a little over 3 seconds faster than the previous junior world record. Um, it's funny like I had some tweets like from former like um, now, uh, World Tour pros like they tweeted. They're like, "Oh, like I remember when I was a junior and I did the 3K and I did like a 3:30 or 3:40." So it's it's quite a bit faster, and like a lot of things have changed from now to then. But I think like the 3K um, 3K is a pretty uh, common distance for everyone to kind of be able to gauge and compare. Um, I do think that it is possible to go faster than a 3:06. Um, I think if I had just a little bit more time, like and I used I don't think the gear I used I could've gone faster. Like I'd have to go to like a sixty one fourteen or sixty fourteen or something like a hundred and ten inch gear bigger. Uh, um and so I do think like the record is very fast and but I do think it's I'd be naive to say it's not breakable. Um and I also think like say you went to like a track like August Calientes, I didn't think like um, you could go around like the three minute mark for sure
0: great well congrats again Magnus and thanks for coming on the podcast Magnus yeah. Sheffield everyone new American record holder we're waiting to see if it's a world record but definitely a name to put on your list of riders to follow after his awesome ride thank you